All right, so uh, before we roll into the book of Ruth here, we start talking about this. Um, I first, I just wanted to share kind of a thought about the Bible. Uh, on Friday, I had the privilege of uh, getting to do something I, I don't do ever. <laughs> But I want to do more of, and that was, I, I had a chance to, I was invited by some other guys in another place to go on a silent retreat. And so I went and spent five hours in the mountains in silence. That's actually really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to be quiet for that long and to not speak and to not interact and to just be, try to be very focused. And yet, I feel like God really met me there. And one of the thoughts, there's a number of things that kind of came through that. And I was praying, praying about a lot of things and just trying to get my heart reset before God and who I am and who is Christ and who do I believe. But one of those things that kind of came to me was this idea about the Bible. And I this, this question, why do we study the Bible? Why do we study the Bible? Here we are, we're going to go four weeks, we're going to look at Ruth. Why do we study the Bible? And if you're a follower of Christ, and most of you here in this room are, and most of you probably do spend time every day or most every day looking at the Bible. Looking at what the Bible has to say. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? There's so many demands on our time. There's so much going on. I don't know about you, but me, I, I know I've got three jobs and I've got six kids, which makes 28 relationships in my house. And I've got a house to manage and I've got a whole bunch of stuff going on. And you can go, oh man, Greg, you've got so much going on. Why do we even bother reading this ancient manuscript? Why do we do it? Well, interestingly, I think the best answer for this is in the Bible itself. And we're going to show that here with a couple of verses. One verse, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Now, hopefully you've got your Bibles with you, or you have your phone, you've got a Bible app, or whatever. If you don't, we're going to have verses on the screen, but in a minute here, we're going to read through Ruth chapter 1, and I'd like you, if you can, to read along with us. And we're going to take a, a minute at the end to sort of ponder on it. Anyway, as you're getting that out, we'll go through a couple of verses here. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, which, by the way, is really sharp, because it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, this is a really bold claim, isn't it? For the Bible to make this claim about itself is really bold. Like, what if I stood up and said, hey, you know, I wrote a book. I didn't write a book, but let's just say I wrote a book. And I said, this book is so good, it penetrates to your soul. You'd be like, uh... <laughs> Dude, it's just a book, right? And we go, okay, well, this isn't a book. This is a bold claim. Look at what this says. It says that the concepts, the thoughts, and the messages, and the instructions of the Bible of itself have the ability to pierce your soul. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? What else can do that? What other writings, what other philosophies, whatever, what other schools of thoughts or sciences can do that? The answer is none. None can. And so we should pay very close attention to what the Bible has to say. Another verse about why we study the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul's writing these instructions to Timothy, and he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Sounds a lot like our world, doesn't it? 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with what? The sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then here's the kicker. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I got three thoughts on this. The first one is like we talked about last week in Easter. Remember, we talked about Jesus and we said, all right, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And he claimed to come back from the dead. And so he either is God or we ought to just totally reject it. We got to just get rid of the whole thing. He either is or he isn't. There's no middle ground. There's no, oh, he was a nice guy. And likewise, I think the Bible says the same thing about itself. It says, hey, this is breathed out by God. This has come literally from the mouth of God. If that's not true, we ought to throw the whole thing out because it says that it is. And if it isn't, it's lying. Because I believe that it is. I think we should pay very close attention. The second thought I have is, when we look at this we look at this verse, we go, hmm, how much scripture, how much of the scripture is, is useful to us? Some people might look at the scripture and say, well, you know, oh, there's those things, or that's really cool, or the Proverbs seem really neat, or I really like the Gospels, but oh man, those minor prophets are kind of strange, and don't read Song of Solomon to your kids, and you know, whatever. You go, oh, that's, but what does it say? All, all scripture. How much is all? What does all mean? What's the Greek word for all? That's <laughs> all. That's right. All of it. So we should always pay attention to any part of it all the time. And so even today and in the coming weeks as we look at the book of Ruth, it's just this tiny little book with four little chapters and you go, oh, it's this nice little story. These are the literal words of God. So let's pay attention. Let's listen. Let's let it press in on us. Amen? third thought on this is that as Paul writes to Timothy, what is his emphasis? Is his emphasis in this passage on the teacher or the material? It's on the material. It's on the material. Now, is there a place for being taught? Yes, there is. There's a place for having someone illuminate the scripture and bring it to bear. But Paul and we here at our church always want to emphasize it's God's word that brings life, not my words. So what I say may or may not be God-breathed because I am a sinful, broken person just like you. But God's word comes from God's mouth. So today as we start, let's, we're going to read the first chapter of Ruth together. And as we do this, I'd like you, as you're reading along on the screen or on your phone or on your Bible or you're listening, to be thinking through, man, God, what do you have for me? So think through what sticks out for you. Maybe you got a little notes thing on your phone and you can jot some notes or you are old-fashioned and have a, a pen and paper or whatever you've got and you can write a couple things down here because we're going to read this and then I'm going to sit down. And for a minute, we'll just have silence and I'll let you sort of think through and ponder what is the word of God? This is the word coming from God's mouth to you. What does it have to say to you? So we'll do that, and then I'll come back up, and I'll share maybe a couple thoughts I have on this passage. And we do this because the power of God's word 
It's the most important thing. So here we go. We're going to go to Ruth chapter 1. It'll take a few slides, so just be patient. And I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. I know some people like to hear as they're reading, and that's fine. So, Ruth chapter 1 starts off, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. <clears throat> then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
this is the word of the Lord. I'd like you to take a minute and ponder on it and pray about it, and then I'll come back up and share my thoughts. Yeah, Lord, thank you for your word and for the truth that's in it. Thank you for speaking to our hearts in Jesus' name. Well, hopefully that gave you a little bit of time, and there'll be some time here. You can keep jotting notes, and you know what? As you go through the week, I'd encourage you keep reading it. Read it again. I know in our gospel group, we, we go back and we talk about what did we learn? What did we learn on Sunday? And my hope and prayer is that each of us would go through the week and um, continue to learn from this passage. So I'm going to share a couple of my thoughts here. And uh, I think when we go to that passage, I'm sure probably for most of us, one of those things that can really stand out to us is that declaration by Ruth, right? Where she says, where you go, I will go. Where I stay, you will stay. I know we sing a song like that, and it's important. And actually, as I pondered through and prayed through this passage, that was not really where the Lord landed me. So if you got that thought, that's a great thought, and it's good in there. But I have a couple other things I feel like God was showing me here through this passage this week. Just two thoughts this morning. The first thought is this. When we read chapter 1, I think we can see that God has a specific role for each of us to play in his story. What's the name of this book? Ruth. But if it was just this chapter, what do you think the name of this book would be? Probably Naomi, right? She seems to be sort of the central character here. And so if you know the story, if you know the book, you know that as we go on to the next chapters, Ruth really comes out and comes to be center stage in this, and we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. But what would Ruth's story be without Naomi? It would be very flat. It would be without context. And what's really important to catch is that Naomi is the person God uses to connect Ruth into his story. Got a picture here of this guy. This is just an ordinary guy. I think he was in the shoe business back in the 1800s. His name was Edward Kimball, and he lived in Detroit. He was a Sunday school teacher, among other things that he did with his business. And one day he went to visit a 17-year-old boy who'd been in a Sunday school class, and the 17-year-old boy just didn't seem to have a whole lot of interest in God or in faith. But during this visit, as he spoke to the boy, he ended up sharing the good news of salvation. And the boy received the free gift of salvation and began a relationship with Christ. Well, as you might expect, that young man was somebody important. His name was D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody went on to become one of the greatest evangelists in the world, sharing the gospel with millions of people. Some, estimate, some people estimate even 100 million people heard the gospel because of D.L. Moody. He founded the Moody Bible Institute and a church in Chicago. But Edward Kimball was important, wasn't he? Even though he was just a shoe guy and he just taught Sunday school and it seemed to be these simple things, he had an important role to play in God's story even though he wasn't the one who stood and shared the gospel in front of millions of people. So we go back to Naomi and we see that Naomi's story is really important. It's important within and of itself, right? Because there's grief and there's loss and there's all this heartache and this hurt and this return back to the people of God. 
But what seems really important is the influence of her life upon Ruth, who, by the way, was a lost pagan woman. It's really important. That influence that Naomi exerted would weave its way, as we'll see in the coming chapters, it would weave its way into the story of Israel and ultimately into the story of Jesus. It's really important. Just as I'm certain that Edward Kimball's life had a story and we don't know all the details, his connection to God's story was in part to bring D.L. Moody to Christ. And so our application here, as I think about our culture and the world we walk in, everything seems to be focused around me. I don't mean that, really, right? Everything is focused around each one of us, right? Our worlds, our culture says you are at the center of the universe. We live in a narcissistic, social media-driven, let me get everybody to look at me and my life, or at least what I want to show them about my life, and give me a thumbs up or a heart, or whatever the thing is there. And it's teaching us, and we all seem to be in this place where we want to be the star. We want to be the central figure. But that's not reality, is it? I hope that's not bursting your bubble. Or maybe I am hoping it's bursting your bubble. I don't know, but that's not what it is. My son Josiah, he participates in theater. He did a show this past fall, and there was maybe, I don't know, 20 kids in it. Guess what? There weren't 20 stars. But the stars couldn't exist without the supporting cast. In the same way, a number of us work for large companies where there's a CEO, and the CEO maybe gets the, the glory or ends up in the publications or is their name on the company or whatever, but they can't do the work without the legions of the hard workers following behind, the supporting cast. And so that's reality. And I think right here in Ruth, God is reminding us that each of us gets woven into his story in his way, in his time, for his purpose. And my hope and my encouragement to you is to rejoice. Rejoice that God has chosen to include each one of us into his story and his way in his time for his purpose. Whether you're the star or not. Second thought I have from chapter 1. Sinners on loss and grief. And I think that loss and grief are not just a part of our stories, but they are often the starting point for God's greatest works in us. I think it's really helpful, as Brad and I decided, oh, let's just take a chapter a week, and it seems simple. But I think it's really important to isolate this chapter. Why? Because it reminds us that grief and loss and sorrow are part of the human condition. Why? Because of our sin. Sin broke the universe. And we get grief and we get loss and we get sorrow. And so when we read chapter 1, what stands out to me is Naomi's profound loss. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what she went through? She moved away into some whole new place. Well, at least I got my husband and I got my sons. We got our family and we're good. And then her husband dies. She goes, oh, well, okay, at least I have my sons. And then her sons die. Like, what tragedy? It's tragedy to lose one child or to lose a spouse, but to lose them all, can you imagine? Maybe some of you have experienced that. I don't know. But in this day, in this time, it was more than that. She ended up losing her livelihood because there was no way for her to work. 
She was a stranger in a strange land. Her family had died. And then there was these two other women, Ruth and Orpah. And clearly there was this love between them. And so she said, okay, well, I have these women. But I'm sure Naomi was going, oh, oh, please stay with me. Please stay with me. But I can't ask you to stay with me. What am I going to ask you? Like, no, you, you have lives to lead, and these are your people, and this is your land, and I need to go back. What am I going to do? Oh, she knew it was going to seem best from the world's perspective for these two women to stay there in Moab. So here's Naomi, and she's basically at the bottom of the well. She's at the bottom of the well. And when it all shakes out, okay, so Ruth comes with her, comes along, Orpah goes home, but Ruth comes with her. But I bet as they go into Bethlehem, Naomi was just racked with guilt going, oh, all this calamity has come onto my life and now I've brought it onto this other woman as well. That's got to be really hard. And I mention all of this as a reminder as a reminder, as we read this book and as we read this chapter, that there is a lot of loss and sorrow and grief. Sometimes I know if you're like me and you've been reading the Bible a long time, you know how the story ends and you go, oh, oh yeah, like her husband died, but then this other thing happened. No, let's sort of focus and sit on that thing that, oh, there's loss and there's grief and there's hurt and we don't know how the story's going to end. And all of this shows us that I think it is right and good to grieve and be bitter. Well, wait, 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 Greg. It's all right to be bitter? I thought bitterness was bad. I thought bitterness was bad. Well, let me explain. I, I think a lot of us as Christians, we'll say things like, don't let bitterness take root. <laughs> it comes, you know, kind of from, from Hebrews chapter 12. But let's go back to what Naomi says there. When she talks about this, she says to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I was going to ask Dave and Diane, because they have a daughter named Naomi. Does anyone know what Naomi means? What? Pleasant. Yeah, it means pleasant, or pleasantness, or sweetness. And Mara means bitter. And so she's got this sort of play on her words and her name and she's using that and it's sort of this interesting thing. She's drawing this contrast. But can any of us dispute what what Naomi is saying here? Have the circumstances turned out pretty poorly for her? Yes, yes, they have. Have these circumstances, have they been out of her control? Was it her own bad decisions that brought her to this place? It doesn't seem that way, does it? It seems like it was perpetuated upon her. Did she go away full? She says, I went away full and came back empty. Is that true? Yeah, it's kind of true, isn't it? And she says, oh, these brought calamity upon me. Has calamity come upon her? Yes, we would all agree. Yes, it has. So it's really important to us to note that life brings calamity upon us because of the brokenness of the universe. And that's true, it makes us bitter. But we've got to define bitter appropriately. I think when we get to the real definition of bitter, it means angry, hurt, or resentful because of one's bad experiences or a sense of unjust treatment. I think, I think we can become bitter. I think we can become bitter, and it be an okay thing when we recognize where the brokenness comes from. 
when we recognize that God's intention and God's design and God's character and God's person is good and it's the brokenness of our own sin and the brokenness of our universe that brings about bitterness and sadness and sorrow and grief. And we can see in Scripture that God himself hates it. God hates sin. Jesus hates sin. And he hates death. Do you you remember Lazarus? Lazarus is in the grave. He's died. And what does Jesus do? He weeps. He weeps. He has sorrow. And he has grief. And there is a bitterness even there. And so we've got to be really clear here that Naomi's loss does not lead her to anger at God, but to anger at sin, death, and brokenness. Well, how do you know that? Why do you know that? The rest of the story shows us her answer, which is this. Our response to sorrow and loss should be to turn towards God and his people. She's not angry at God. Even though she says, wow, he's visited these things and this calamity has come upon me. We see the glimpses we get of her as we go through the story points to that she has a heart for God. I think it's also important to note that nobody corrects her for this bitterness. Nobody says, there's no recollection, no no recording here of anybody saying, oh, Naomi, just buck up. Just think happy thoughts. (laughs) God will never give you more than you can handle. Which, by the way, is in the scripture, right? I think even more importantly than nobody else being recorded as correcting her, we don't see God correcting her for being bitter. And why is that? Because God goes, yeah, it's okay to grieve because there's sorrow and there's loss and there's sin and it's broken and it's bad. But then she takes that and turns towards God and toward God's people. Interestingly enough, as we go through the rest of the book, there is no more mention of Naomi's sorrow. Oh, I'm sure it was present. I'm sure she knew about it. I'm sure she couldn't but help but wake up every morning alone and remember that sorrow. As any of us have experienced sorrow and loss, we would know how that is. But there's no more mention of it in the book. Instead, we get, she returned and they came to Bethlehem. She went back to God's people. She returns to God's people. And we see instead of her turning away from God, she turns to God in chapter 2, verse 20. Talking about Boaz, she says, The Lord bless him. That doesn't sound like somebody who's bitter at God, does it? So in the midst of her sorrow, she turns back to God. And she returns to God's people. She goes and she lives among them. She speaks to them. And more importantly... She takes this lost pagan woman who's come with her and she turns her towards a relationship with a God and relationship with other people. And in the end, you've got to go all the way to chapter 4, and at the very end, what do we see? We see the people of God rejoicing with Naomi and around Naomi and Ruth at what God has done in their situation. We see God's people rejoicing. So you go, okay, so how does this relate to us? How does this relate to us? Well, I think it's fairly obvious. We cannot avoid sorrow and loss, can we? We cannot avoid grief. If you haven't experienced it, if you aren't experienced it, it's coming at you. We need to accept it. And it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be bitter and angry at the sin and the brokenness of the world. 
but in it. Because we got to remember that loss and that grief is a starting point. It is a starting point sometimes for God to do some of his greatest works. If you're in the midst of sorrow, if you're in the midst of loss, if you're in the midst of grief, recognize that you're at a starting point for God to do a great work in your life. But you've got to turn towards God. You've got to turn towards God. You've got to follow Naomi's example. Turn to God and turn towards his people. Who are his people? Well, we're his people. There's a lot of God's people around. This is one family and we're so happy to be here. And hopefully, for those of you who are new, you've come to understand and recognize we're not here to entertain you. We're not here to entertain ourselves. If we were, we're not, probably not doing a very good job of it. We're here to be a family, to be a place where we can turn to each other and turn to God together, where we can be God's people together. And maybe that won't make sense unless you jump in and start to put your life to life with each of us. And we'd love to have you do that. Our primary goal as a group is to love each other as God loves us. Amen. That's what we're here for. That's what we're trying to do. And as we do that... We want to point each other back where? Back to God and back to God's word and the life that comes to us through God's word. So those are some thoughts I had from Ruth. I'll pray and close our time. God, you are good. You are worthy of our praise. And God, we recognize that we live in a universe, in a world, in a culture, in a city, in a neighborhood, in a home. In a life that's broken by sin. And the brokenness of the sin leads to death. And in all of this brokenness and all of the things that are wrong, Lord, we are sorrowful and we are grieved and we experience the loss. Each one of us. God, thank you for giving us this model of this person of Naomi from centuries ago, right here in this book, this word breathed out of your mouth for us. And it shows us an example that we can be angry at the brokenness of the sin in the world and from that we can turn to you and turn to each other. God, help us to do that. Oh, Lord, I know my sinful nature is when I am sorrowful, when I am grieved, when I see loss, I want to retreat. God, help me not to retreat. Help me to draw closer to you. Help me to cling to your word and to the saints that you've put around me and my family. Thank you for this model that you've given us. Thank you that the scripture is breathed out by you and is useful for all sorts of things to help us. Guide us as we go out from here. In Jesus' name, amen.